So, what we have been doing for the last, what, year, uh, half a year, uh, is uh, working through statements by Ellen White, some of which sound like they're in a model more like I present in class. I don't remember which classes you come from, from me. Which classes are you? Encountering. Encountering Jesus. Okay. You've heard a little bit of my talk about um, how Jesus came to reveal the Father and, and the great controversy and how Satan lied about God. You've heard me t- say that in class. And that, that's a model that is underrepresented in the Adventist church, really. Um, it's a model for seeing the plan of salvation more as a good news about God rather than uh, the step-by-step process of how we're saved. And the the usual model for viewing salvation has been it's called, sometimes called a legal model, uh, the forensic model sometimes it's called, where Jesus dies to, it varies, Jesus dies to satisfy God's justice and some People will say he, de- satis- he uh, pacified the Father's wrath by his death. Uh, the view we have is, is very different from that. Uh, it is that Jesus did not die to appease the Father, but uh, the Father gave his Son, and, and in a sense they gave themselves for the sacrifice for the purpose of showing that God is not someone who needs to be appeased. God is not someone who will destroy you if you don't love him but God is someone who you can trust. And uh, sometimes that's called the trust healing model. Sometimes it's called the great controversy model. There's a variety of names for it. But that's the model we've been working on. And what we've been doing in examining Ellen White, because she makes statements that sound very legal, very forensic, and then she makes other statements that sound very much like the healing and trust model, the more descriptive law kind of model that I've been uh, teaching in my classes. Uh, and, and so we're, what we've been trying to do is understand how to read her. And, and the same principles apply, of course, to how to read the Bible because the Bible has both kinds of language in it. And so what we have done it first of all is develop principles for interpretation and I want to remind you today of those principles because I think we've kind of lost sight of them we've summer has come and gone and and we're kind of a little detached from what we're doing so I wanted to review those principles here we go the first and foremost principle that Ellen White outlines is that the Bible is both a human and a divine book the most important to me, the most important principle to realize is that the Bible was written in human language and the human language is imperfect. And that comes right from Ellen White. Uh, she makes no bones about it, that the language is imperfect and that the, therefore we have to look behind the language for the meaning. And so that's one principle. Uh, truth is not on the surface. Um, the, I, would, I would like to suggest that the legal model is a surface model. It's a, it's a model that, that takes the language at face value, doesn't try to get behind it, and assumes that that language is the final word on what is truth. Uh, and, and so it's important to recognize that a surface understanding is not necessarily going to lead us to truth. We have to get behind language. And um, the idea of comparing Scripture with Scripture uh, and finding keys in scripture, a passage that 
unlocks all the other passages that are difficult. Uh, and, and one example I use parentally is to me, one key in the Bible for God's wrath is Romans 1, where it says three times that God gave them up. And it's a very definitive statement on God's wrath. It says uh, the wrath of God was revealed from heaven. That word revealed really means that you're going to see a revelation of it. You're going to see what it really is. And three times it says God gave them up, which suggests that God doesn't destroy people in his wrath. He simply lets them go because that's the meaning of the verb. Um, that to me is a key for all the other places in the Bible where God's wrath is mentioned. So um, that's another uh, example for Scripture as a key that unlocks Scripture. Uh, and then taking truth out of a setting of error and placing it in the setting of truth. Uh, I maintain that the legal construct was invented by Mesopotamians, Babylonians, and that it is, was not invented by God. And that God's law is descriptive in nature and that he has used the legal construct to meet people who were already using it at the foot of Sinai. But in reality, God's law is descriptive in nature, uh, very much like natural law in the way it works. So uh, these are some of the things to keep in mind. I think that pretty much covers it. So we're ready to roll. Okay, to handouts for today, we're starting a new process. It's called Ellen White's Use of Forensic Terminology. Okay, um, we're, what I gave you is the last part of the document we were working on. And um, Okay, so you now have two documents. You have Mediation and Intercession, number 27, 28, 29. And you have thoughts on mediation and intercession. You may remember this. Some of you may remember this format from last year. Uh, we were using it on atonement. Um, so what we usually do is we read a statement by Ellen White. And uh, then we might discuss it a little bit. And then turn to the thoughts that I have on that statement. Uh, read through that. And uh, this is a much shorter document than the document we worked on last spring. And uh, once we're through with this document, we will turn to the Bible and do a similar thing with the Bible, which you won't have as much paper with that one. You'll have some, because uh, the Bible's a big book, but um, it won't be quite as unwieldy, I think. Okay, so I'll begin with reading 27, and then I'll move to you. God is approached through Jesus Christ, the mediator, the only way in which he forgives sins. God cannot forgive sins at the expense of his justice, his holiness, and his truth. But he does forgive sins, and that fully. There are no sins he will not forgive in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the sinner's only hope, and if he rests here in sincere faith, he is sure of pardon, and that full and free. There is only one channel. And that is accessible to all. And through that channel, a rich and abundant forgiveness awaits the penitent, contrite soul and darkest sins are forgiven. Uh, what are the problems you see with that statement? What, what puzzles you? What do you find difficult? The contradiction to the model we're looking at here is God's approach through Jesus Christ, the mediator, 
the only way through which he forgives sins. God would not forgive us if it weren't for Jesus. Uh, what does that imply? And of course, we, th- we th- immediately think of a- uh, forgiveness as an attitude. And what do you do with Exodus 34, 6 and 7, where it says clearly in the Hebrew, God is one who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. This is his part of his nature, his self-revelation, his self-disclosure. This is the problem, I think, isn't it? How do we reconcile this statement with that? Anybody have any ideas? Let's try looking at this through an experiential lens rather than a judicial one. I mean, this sounds very legal. God cannot forgive sins at the expense of his justice. Immediately, we're drawn into a law court setting. But let's try this experientially. If God in the Garden of Eden had merely forgiven Adam and Eve and said, I forgive you, just don't do it again, what would have happened? Probably done it again. We probably would have. Huh? What else might have happened? Sin's still there, right? Mm-hmm. Sin, it's sin. And what is sin at this point? Uh, at this point, it's still just disobeying what God has told him, which was just don't eat of the tree. Mm-hmm. Okay, that seems to be just what sin is. Is there any more to it than that? Um, I guess God gave a commandment. Was it more of a commandment, I think, about, no, don't eat of this tree like a warning, you know? Don't, please, don't do this. It's a definite don't, not maybe. Maybe you could do it, get away with it once or twice, and then it was, it was very don't. explicit. It was very mm-hmm. explicit, yeah. And so for him to. I mean, I know it hurt him to have to kick him out of the Garden of Eden. I mean, he didn't want to, but they might have done it again. And also, that was a commandment to be obeyed. Mm-hmm. And, um, what, were, what were the consequences of disobeying? The consequences that Adam had to work and sweat, you know, from his brow. And the woman no, but what, what did God originally they, warn them would happen? If they oh, that they wouldn't have eternal life. They, they would, would die. They would surely die they would someday, die. yeah. Actually, it says, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, which poses all kinds of problems for theologians (laughs) to wrestle with. But if that's the case, and, and it leads to death, would saying, I forgive you, stop the consequences? And you see, this is where the legal model and I part company. Because, because if, if God, if, if the, it is true that they die, in the legal model, God is the one who kills them, and so if he forgives them, he's not going to kill them. That's the legal model in a nutshell. But what if sin actually leads to death? Would saying, I forgive you, set them free from the consequences of sin? Not, not immediately because, because of why. Why wouldn't it? Why wouldn't saying, I forgive you, be enough? Because the action was already committed. They already disobeyed. And something's happened to their mind? Something happened to their mind. That they, are, um, they're not, they already partook in sin for the first time. They're not innocent. <laughs> and, and what is the mental process that led them to take that fruit. I think what led them was maybe 
maybe curiosity and maybe of having was more knowledge. I think the serpent was talking to them, you know, mm-hmm. on the tree or and whatever. They're that was. deceived into thinking they're there's more knowledge. They're deceived in thinking, and they were just kind of maybe it was greed of something more, kind of like what Satan had in heaven, like wanting more and more. And, of this and what and more did that, that. tell them about God? Told them that maybe they couldn't trust God or or He's not adequate for you. And yeah, you need more. Um, you can't really trust him to tell the truth. You won't die. You think about what Satan claimed there at the tree, and it becomes very obvious that he's inferring, not directly confronting, but insinuating that God can't be trusted, that he's arbitrary, he's restrictive, he's self-centered, he, and, and you can go right down the line. And once, once you think that way, can forgiveness undo that damage? What would it take to undo that damage? I guess maybe going through the consequences, but then having his mercy by your side still. Like, you might, you know, basically Jesus... The problem, the the problem is if I go through the consequences, I'm dead and that's it. And then poor, poor Christ, I mean, people were kind of blame him for things like, oh, great, how this happened. But then, like, he's, like, kind of put as a bad guy sometimes. Uh-huh. uh-huh. For some time, you know, for some people. But he's, like, give them the warning and things happen automatically. Yeah. I, I, think, I think what we have to establish is that forgiveness is not adequate unless there's a demonstration of the consequences of sin. Someone has to die. Not to satisfy God's wrath in the sense that he's so angry he needs somebody to die. He's got to vent his spleen on someone. It's not that at all. But someone has to die to demonstrate that sin leads to death because we'll never turn away from it if if we don't see the demonstration of what it does. Okay, why don't we go to thoughts on um, meditation and intercession statements. And um, why don't you start reading, and and, uh, we do a paragraph at a time. Seven. According to our God, self-disclosure to Moses, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, Jesus is the one who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Look at Great Controversy 416, 417, 484, 485, What's PK? Prophets and Kings. Prophets and Kings, 585 through 587. Christ Object Lessons. Christ Object Lessons, 166 and 168 through 168. See handout, additional statements on uh, meditation and intercession. Why is God approached only through Jesus the Mediator? Note this statement. Go ahead. Those whom Christ commands in judgment may have known little of theology but they have cherished their, his principles. Through the influences of the divine spirit, they have been a blessing to those about them. Then among the heathen are those who have cherished the spirit of, of kindness. Before the words of life and f- the f- life had fallen upon his, their ears, they have befriended the, the missionaries, even mis- ministered to them of, at the peril of their own lives. Among the heathen and those who worship a God's, or God, God arrogantly, those whom the light is never brought by human in, 
instrumentality, yet they not perish. So through arrogant, <coughs> though ignorant, ignorant of the written of God's law, uh, they have heard His voice speaking to them in nature, and have done the things that they are required. That they required. Their works are uh, in, in evidence <laughs> that ho- the Holy Spirit has touched their hearts, and they are recognized as the children of God. How surprised and gladdened will be the lowly among the nations and among the heathen to hear from the lips of the Savior. And as much as ye have done unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. How glad will be the heart of infinite love as his followers look up, up with surprise and joy at his words of approval. Desire of Ages 638. Okay. Um, any questions or comments? What, what this statement does is is uh, broaden out and, and make puzzling her statement that he will not, there are no sins he will not forgive in and through Je- the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the sinner's only hope. These people don't even know Jesus, and yet they're going to be saved. How does this work? So we're talking about people like around the world who might, other people who might not have heard about mm-hmm. God, have been witness to, but they're supposed to be saved. It seems like they somehow they know Jesus indirectly, like they know who Jesus is. They know his character, despite not knowing the literal Jesus. In other words, once the revelation of God is clear in Jesus, the world is in a safe position to be able to know him. Even though it might, they might not have the right name, they might not uh, understand all, all the things we do about the atonement and, and all of that, they still, because Jesus has done what he did, the world is in a position to be able to know him. And the Holy Spirit can take what Jesus did and mediate it uh, in, a, in a further way in their lives. Um, there's, there's a way in which uh, we can look at this, and it's, some, uh, it's somewhat a legal way, I suppose. Uh, and that is to suggest that Satan laid claim to this world. Because we fell, he said, it's mine and you can't have them. They're mine. By demonstrating the truth about his lies and the truth about God, Jesus took that world back, took us back, and he said, they're really mine. And I have the right to shed the, whatever light they're willing to receive on them. So this is, this is like a set in time and place. Nothing can uh, negate the death of Christ and all that it accomplished. And it sets God free to do what he otherwise could not do. Okay, let's uh, read on. Why don't you go ahead and get... Oh, sorry. Give the microphone back. And go ahead and, and read the next paragraph. If this statement is true, how should we interpret statement 27? Would forgiveness have any meaning if sin were not clearly demonstrated in terms of its nature? Could forgiveness exist without the truth about God's character, the nature of his law and its consequences? How can forgiveness have any positive effect on our lives if the truth about the nature of God's justice were not revealed? True forgiveness and true justice are both attributes of divine love. Remember this statement from the Desire of Ages. God's love has been expressed in his justice, no less than in his mercy. Justice is the foundation of his throne and the fruit of his love. It has been saints' purpose to divorce mercy from truth and justice. 
He sought to prove that the righteousness of God's law is an enemy to peace. But Christ shows that in God's plan, they are indissoluble, joined together. The one cannot exist without the other. Okay. I think it's helpful to revisit this statement. Uh, It's Satan who's kind of created this dichotomy between justice and mercy because Satan sees three things through a very legal lens. And um, so it seems to me that we're the ones that struggle with this dichotomy. And and we see that dichotomy in Scripture. We see that dichotomy in Ellen White um, because of our human uh, inability to understand things as a whole. Okay, uh, let's uh, move on. From a legal perspective, one could argue that without the establishment of justice, God could not forgive. That is, without executing justice on his son, God could not manifest an attitude of forgiveness. But such a claim is predicted on the assumption that Jesus' justice and forgiveness are at variance, and that God's holiness so abhors sin that he must execute justice on his son before... He can forgive. This is contrary to the above statement, which clearly says that justice and mercy are both in harmony within God's love. They are not in conflict. The premise on which an experiential view rests is the assumption that the problem of sin is a problem with us, not with God. God remains constant. He is consistently love. We are the ones who are hostile, sinful, and dying as a result. God comes to the rescue, but because our perceptions of reality are so skewed by Satan's lies about God and about sin, he must first establish what sin is, what it leads to, and how much God wants to save us from it for our own sake before he can offer us forgiveness. Without that, forgiveness would do nothing for us but to seal us in our self-destructive destiny apart from God. Said another way, If God were to forgive us without our knowing of how dreadful sin is and what it leads to, we would be only too happy to accept his forgiveness and go on sinning and die eternally as a result. This this clearly makes sin a problem, a real problem that we that is in us, not a not that God is the problem. Our our tendency has been that Jesus has died to save us from God rather than to save us from sin. And so by changing models, it clearly focuses the problem is, is sin and what it leads to rather than God and what he's going to do to us. I, did I tell you about the, the picture, I think I did last week, um, that a theologian posted on his, on his blog you, yeah, Bianca remembers it. Which one? it. It's the one of Jesus standing at the door and knocking. Oh, and then it's captioned with. With I, please open the door to me so that I, then so I can save you from what I'm going to have to do to you if you don't open the door. Right. <laughs> and the and the theologian, of course, is countering that. You know, he he posted it to say, isn't this ridiculous? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But. Um, Uh, th- these, uh, what we're discussing here, really, is being talked about all over the Christian world uh, right now. 
and especially among your more progressive Christians, evangelical Christians. Uh, it's like the, the door has been opened at, now that a few very prominent people like Rob Bell and um, there's another pastor, I believe, of the United Methodist Church who moved, who basically threw away the view of hell uh, as an ever-burning hell or as a place of torment and, and all of that. Uh, and they're kind of groping their way toward what, it, what really is the, uh, the result of sin or, or what really is going to take place. But they're clearly very concerned that a better picture of God be revealed than has been heretofore. So um, we're part of a larger discussion that's very fascinating to tap into. Any questions or comments? Um, the idea of that that sin destroys us, you know, mm-hmm. it's you know the consequences of sin is death, etc. Um, seems like such like a simple idea. I don't know. It seems just like such overkill. I don't. I don't know. Like it should be to, obvious. Yeah, yes. Like why? Do, why do we have to wait two thousand years? And why did Jesus have to die? You know, and live a sinless life when couldn't somebody have just said that? Obvious. Yeah. <laughs> What do you do with that? <laughs> yeah. Why did we have to wait so long? Uh, after Jesus died, before Jesus died, you have around four thousand years. It also seems really like vague in the in the Bible text. Like it's hard uh-huh. to get that out of mm-hmm. old mm-hmm. and New Testament with the whole mm-hmm. sacrifice system mm-hmm. and all that. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it is true that truth lies beneath the surface? Because that's what we're dealing with, this, this problem of, you know, I'm bringing something to light that seems obvious and overkill. Why is it so hard to get to? Why does it, why does it lie beneath the surface? Why it ta- has it taken so long? All of, all of those questions, I think, are, are part of the question, why? I, you know, why is it that way? Is it going back to the language is imperfect? Or... I think I think we don't we have a hard time wrapping our minds around the fact and this is this is even more elusive that we're deceived. I don't think you know you can convince almost anybody that they're a sinner. Yeah, sure. I haven't always kept the rules. I haven't always obeyed God. I haven't, you know, etc. It's harder to convince someone that they haven't trusted God. And I think, I think on on some level, we all distrust him to a certain degree. We don't completely, one hundred percent, trust him. That it's harder to convince a person of that. Then you move to, and you've embraced lies about God. What? I don't believe any lies about God. Everything I believe about God is true. I bet nine out of ten people would tell you that. Especially in the Adventist church, <laughs> where it's a sin practically to admit you don't know God perfectly. <laughs> um, so I think that's part of our problem. Is is that it, there's we don't realize how duped we've been, and often, and, and this isn't true of this group, but. Often, when the people when people encounter 
a different perspective on God's character, they, their reaction is, no, <laughs> that can't be true. It's not that way. So I, I, I'm going to rest it there because I think that has to be the starting place. And I think everything else comes um, once it comes a, a logical sequence after we grapple adequately with our human condition. But I think that's why sin, you know, in the good old days when I was a child, everything was neat and tidy. You obeyed God or you didn't. You were in or you were out. And to tell you honestly, I grew up without forgiveness. Nobody ever preached a sermon on forgiveness. That's probably hard for you to fathom, given that almost every sermon in the Adventist church now has something to say about forgiveness. But I grew up without forgiveness. The church never preached it. And then towards the end, toward, when I was about 12, 11 or 12, uh, somehow word got out to the pastors, you need to give people some hope, you know, not just <laughs> preach about their sins. <laughs> and so at the end of sermons, after you hear the traditional spiel about you're a sinner and, and you need to repent and et cetera, et cetera, at the very end, they would say, P.S. No, they wouldn't say P.S., but it sounded like, P.S., God loves you. <laughs> and about that time, the sun would come out of the Oregon clouds. And I was like, maybe God does love me. <laughs> uh, that, that's, that's how I was raised. And, and so we've, had, we've gone the other, other direction. We've, we've preached God's love, but we still have this thing of, because we didn't obey, uh, Jesus had to die. Our penalty, we should have been the one executed, and God had to execute his son in our stead. Hmm. And that's how we are saved. It doesn't lead us back to trust. It might lead us to obey, but why? Out of fear, Out of fear or obligation, or maybe thanksgiving that God was so kind and forgiving that we... Uh, out of great gratitude, we we serve him, but the trust, the the relationship of love and trust, just isn't quite the same. So, I think, and and the other thing is, and this is one more thing I'll say about this in response to our question. Anything that deals with the mind, when the mind has been deceived, takes time. It takes a long time for people to shift from a distrust of someone to trusting them completely. It takes a long time with a lot of evidence. And, and I think that so often we limit the evidence of the truth about God to the cross or maybe to the life of Jesus in the cross. But actually, once we really understand the Old Testament better, and understand how God has, how the, once we get behind the language and recognize that it's very deterministic and that God hasn't been out slaughtering a lot of people, uh, that it hasn't worked quite that way. Once we get behind that and, and see the Old Testament for what it really is, we see actually more evidence that we can trust God. And that, that's what God has been trying to build with humanity uh, from the very beginning. But he's had to go a slow, long, and costly route to get there. I, you think about, if you've studied history at all, 
in the Middle Ages, could we be talking about God like this and having a love and trust relationship? And and um, it's like, what? I wouldn't do that with my feudal over- overlord. <laughs> it just wouldn't work. You think of the tools we have that even 50 years ago we didn't have in psychology, in science, to understand things and how they work. A uh, hundred years ago, people did not fully understand cause and effect relationships. It's really the Adventist church that has pioneered that, along with science. But in terms of religious uh, bodies, the Adventist church was the first to say, there's a connection between what you eat and your body and how it functions. There's a connection between uh, how much sunlight, fresh air, and exercise you get and your body and how it functions. Uh, We were the ones that actually pioneered that in terms of religious groups. Uh, We haven't bought into it, unfortunately, in terms of how we think about God. So hopefully this gets us started on mediation. And I don't mind reviewing atonement. As you can see, this is as a short document, so we won't be spending hopefully many weeks on this. And then we'll get on to the Bible. I don't expect to spend many weeks on the Bible, though we may end up. And then hopefully by winter quarter, uh, we can head for Babylon. We're going to go to Babylon. We're going to go to Babylon. We're going to find out where this all began. Anyway, uh, let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you so much for what you have done to bring us back to trust, to invoke in us love, to help us to understand you and your ways. And I think of Jesus' parable of the, of, uh, the sower that It is only through understanding that you can heal us and make us whole. I pray that we may fully understand you as as we work through this process, that your light may shine into our minds, that we might see uh, your word in its true light. Bless us now as we go our way. Bless us in our studies and all that we have to do this week. And bring us back again next week in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.